So one of the things I just made mention of is that in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms and then in the prophecy of Isaiah, we are told again and again that one of the marks of the messianic age to come is that the Messiah will give sight to the blind. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 7. Psalm 146, verse 8. And interestingly, what we have before us is Jesus giving sight to a blind man. Blind from birth. In other words, as we come to this passage, I'm going to give you the big idea is we're going to see that Jesus is the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah. Now, although the issue of physical blindness lies at the heart of this passage, it is also true to say so is the issue of spiritual blindness. You see, what we have in front of us this morning is what we would call an enacted parable, an enacted miracle. This man was born blind. Every human being since the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, we are all, spiritually speaking, born blind. This man receives his physical sight from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. All of us who would come to know that he is the Messiah, the light of the world, the sent one of the Father, can receive our sight by putting our faith and trust in him. There's such an intimate connection between the previous chapter and this chapter. Thematically, the thing that holds them together is that in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. And in John chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus will declare again, I am the light of the world. He's the one who dispels darkness. He's the one who enables people to see. Now, we all know that light has got two purposes. Light dispels darkness, and light can also blind you. So my son Theo found this torch in one of our cupboards. It belonged to my wife when she was in the police. And this is a really powerful torch. It's a little torch, but if you press it on and you're in a dark room, it, it just lights up the entire room. It dispels the darkness. But if you do what my son Theo loves doing, if you shine it in people's faces, it blinds you for a moment so that you can't see. The key verse in this passage is verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. He's come to give light to the blind. And those who see may become blind as they reject the light of the world. I've got three headings for us to use as we walk through this passage. Heading number one, the miracle, verses one to seven. Heading number two, the man, verses eight to 34. Heading number three, the meaning, verses 35 to 41. The miracle, the man, the meaning. So let's pick things up. Verse one, the miracle is Jesus passed by. So Jesus has just been kicked out of the temple. Remember that so-called believing crowd. They've picked up stones to put him to death because he declared before Abraham was, I am. Jesus has fled from the temple. And as he's leaving the temple, he passes by, presumably, we, we don't know exactly if it, this is the moment it happened at, he passed by this blind man from birth. It's a key detail. He was born blind. 
It's mentioned ten times in this passage. And Jesus saw this man. It's interesting. We know from verse 8 that this was a, a blind beggar. He used to sit and beg. That's how his, his, his friends and his neighbors remembered him. Maybe I can ask you a question. How many times do you take note of the beggars that you pass by on the street? Like, do you really see them? You see, Jesus saw this man. In fact, such was his gaze and his focus and attention on this man that the disciples who were with Jesus were forced also to look at this man. But their problem is they see this man, but they don't really see this man. You see, as they see this man, a question immediately pops into their minds. They look at this man and they see a theological conundrum, a theological problem. Who's to blame for the state he's in? I don't know if you ever pass a a beggar on the street and wonder to yourself, I wonder how they got themselves into this situation. The disciples do something similar, except they wonder, is it this man's fault? Did he sin when he was in the womb? Or was it his parents' fault? One of the things that might be helpful to understand is that in the ancient cultures, especially the Palestinian culture, the Jewish culture in large, there was this sort of superstitious belief that one's individual suffering, personal suffering, was as a result of your own personal sin, or at least sin in your family. You get it in Eastern cultures, karma, reincarnation, all of these things. You get it in our culture. Some of you might think it. I'm suffering because of something I've done. Now here's the thing. Jesus is emphatic. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not this man who saw his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It is true that there is a general relationship between sin and suffering. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, ate the forbidden fruit, sinned against God, And the calamity it brought into this world is sin and death. This world's broken. But the only time where someone starts to say, here's a a personal instance of your suffering because of your sin in a a huge way is in Job. And it's his friends and they're foolish because they're trying to say, Job, you're suffering because of your own personal sin. Jesus says, no, no, no. Here's the point. This blind man, this blind beggar, He's in this situation, but it's so that the works of God might be displayed. We've we've made mention to this in one of our other series in Romans, that suffering can be used by God for his own glorious purposes. And we're going to see this man's suffering will be used to reveal the glory of God. Now, can I just say one point just as a side? One of the most tragic things about churches like ours is that we can be the church like the disciples where things that fascinate our minds are the theological questions, theological conundrums. But it is a tragedy when churches like ours overindulge ourselves in theological questions and are never led to help those in need. These disciples, they don't see this man as someone who should be an object of their compassion and their love and their affection. These men see these these disciples see this man's situation as a theological puzzle for them to be figured out. 
Now, Jesus' response in verse 4 is this. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. It's clear from Jesus' point of view that there's an urgency to the work of the kingdom, the work that is to be done. We must do the works of God whilst we have opportunity. We mustn't stand around talking theology in the vain sense. We must get about the work of God. I know this was a word to his disciples in that context, but it's a word to all of us who are followers of Jesus. What are we busy with? Look at what Jesus says next. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, it'd be easy to hear that wrong and think that Jesus is saying, as long as he's in the world, he's the light of the world, and then when he ascends to the Father, he's no longer the light of the world. But of course, that's not what he's saying. He's meaning, I am the light of the world who's shining brightly right now until the moment of my glorification. And here we have this, here the world has this glorious opportunity to see me for who I am. And what Jesus says, or what John says next, having said these things, having made this declaration about who he is, Jesus, to prove that he is the light of the world, to back up his assertion, does this miracle. I want you to see this, right? We've just sung about it in Psalm 116. Our God is the God who is not indifferent to the plight of others. Our God is not indifferent to those who are in need. And here's Jesus, and he has compassion on this man. He has love that is moved to action. He spit on the ground, made mud with, with his saliva, then he anointed the man's eye with the mud and said to him, go wash yourself in the pool, Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now I'm sure if we went and asked a doctor, would this work? Tell us no. In fact, we, we live right now in the city of London near one of the greatest eye hospitals in the whole of the world, Moorfields. In 2009, the surgeons there performed a remarkable thing. They gave a man a bionic eye. A man who couldn't, wasn't born blind, but he'd, he'd become blind in his life. He couldn't see for 30 years. And then through amazing technology, they, they gave him a bionic eye that enabled him to see shadows and shades. So if a white line is on the floor, he can see it. He could actually sort out his black and white socks. Incredible. It doesn't compare to what Jesus does here. Now, we don't know why Jesus did it this way. All the scholars and commentators will give their speculations. But what we do know is this. Jesus did it. This man went away and he came back seeing Remember, this is a sign. And this sign is intended to point us to who Jesus is. In fact, I'm so convinced that that's the point that John gives us seemingly insignificant detail. But if you've been reading and following through from John chapter 8, you'll know this is no insignificant detail at all. He says the pool means sent. And as we've been reading through from John chapter 8, what's Jesus been described as again and again the sent one just take your bible turn back one page john 8 verse 16 
Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Look at verse 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Look at verse 26. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who me is true. Look at verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love him. But for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And again in chapter 9, verse 4 and 7, Jesus is the sent one. The reason this miracle happens is to point us to the fact that Jesus is who he has proclaimed himself to be. He is the sent one of the Father. He is the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah. He's the one who can open the eyes of the blind. This is astonishing. This is remarkable. This man was born blind. He couldn't see from the beginning. And Jesus restores his sight. This backs up that Jesus is who he said he is. He is the light of the world. The question is, do you, do I believe this? That's the purpose of the miracle, to point us to who Jesus is. Now let's come to the man Now, what is really fascinating is from verse 8 to verse 34, Jesus disappears. And no longer is he center stage, but the healed man is center stage. But even though he's center stage, the discussion that will take place will center on the healer, Jesus. Now, just think about it, right? This man, born blind, couldn't see. And then he came back from the pool and he could see. This is truly incredible, right? He now looks at people and he he can see them for the first time. He can look at the, the, the clouds in the sky. He can look at the temple. He can see the buildings. He can see where he sat. He can see the dusty path. He's never seen anything before. He can see his hands, his feet, his legs. He can see shadow. And he's so overwhelmed that the first thing we get the sense that he did is he went home. He went back to his neighborhood. Verse 8, the neighbor, those who'd seen him before as a beggar, were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. Now, some people say, is the Bible ever humorous? If there is any humorous account in the Bible, I'm telling you, this is it, right? Those who can see, see this man, but they don't really see him for who he is. They look at him and say, is it him? Is this the guy that we know, you know, that we grew up with, that used to sit and beg? Yeah, I think it is. No, 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 it's not him. It looks like him, but they're not convinced. No, it can't be him. And the reason it's so humorous is, is that if you look at the man's response, he had to keep on saying, I am the man, it's me. I'm the guy that couldn't see. I'm the guy that used to beg. He kept on saying, it is me. Now, why was this his friend's and his neighborhood's response? Because no one had ever seen the likes. You can't be born blind and then one day start seeing. It's impossible. It never happens. So you might look like the guy, but you're different because now you can see. It's not the guy I used to know. And if we put ourselves in the neighbor's sandals, we can, we can sympathize with them. Things like this don't happen. 
And so their confusion leads them to ask for an explanation. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? Now here's his answer. The man. (laughs) Jesus. That's all that Jesus says to him, right? He's just the man. The man Jesus. He called me and told me to make mud and anointed my eyes and said, go to Siloam and wash. I went, I washed and received my sight. And so they say to him that the obvious question, so, so where is he? And this man just honestly replies, I don't know. And, and honestly, it's so true to life, right? If Jesus has just escaped a hit on his life, right? He's not going to stand around. And then you've got this man and he's just had his sight restored. What's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to go home and tell your mom and dad. You're going to go home and tell all your friends. I can see. So where is he? I don't know. Now it appears that the man's answers raised more questions in his friends' and neighbors' minds. And so in verse 13 we read this. They, the neighbors, brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. I think I should say this. I don't think there's any malice in what they did here. They just want to get an expert's opinion. This sort of thing doesn't happen. And in the nature of the day, the ones that you wanted to consult to ask, is this really of God, is the religious leaders? Little did they know this man was about to be subjected to interrogation and then even excommunication. So we noted that the disciples, they, they saw this man, but they didn't really see this man. The neighbors, they saw this man, but they didn't really see this man. Now surely, surely, the disciples, the Pharisees rather, they'll see, they'll see it. Now in verse 14, we get the most surprising twist in the story. It's like a bolt from the blue. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. It's really strange that John only gets round to telling us this detail now. Because this is no small or insignificant detail. This is hugely significant. Like, John chapter 5, Jesus healed a lame man on the Sabbath. And we read in John chapter 5, verse 18, what was the response of the Pharisees? They wanted to kill Jesus all the more. And here's Jesus. And he performs another healing, and it's on the Sabbath. Like, Jesus could have waited one more day. But he deliberately chose to do it on the Sabbath. Remember, because he is the God of the Sabbath. He and his Father are working together. Now, Jesus had broken, in the Pharisees' minds, God's law. And their law. The Pharisees taught the only things you can do on the Sabbath, the only works of mercy you can do in the Sabbath are in a life and death situation. Problem with this miracle is it's not life and death. This man was born blind. Every day of his life he was blind. It's not life or death, is it? Jesus could have waited one more day and then done this miracle. But what's worse, Jesus worked. He spat on the ground, he picked up the mud, and then he put it in a man's... That's working in the eyes of the Pharisees. And so in their minds, Jesus is a lawbreaker. And so as this man is brought to them, instead of them standing in amazement and celebration, they now come and they want this great inquisition. 
The Pharisees, verse 15, asked him how he had received the sight. And the man gives the exact same answer he'd given to his neighbors and his friends in verse 11. He put mud in my eyes, I washed, and I see. Now, do you remember, the neighbors were divided over this man. Was it really him? So too, for the first time in this gospel, we now see that there is a division among the Pharisees. Up until now, they've always all been united. They've all shown a united front. They're all against Jesus. And now they're divided, and they're divided not over the identity of man, but over the identity of the man, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath, meaning he's a sinner. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So there's some Pharisees, and they start thinking like, We know what the Old Testament teaches. We know the prophecy of Isaiah. We know the Psalms that we grew up singing. When the Messiah comes, he'll do signs just like this one. So surely, he can't be a sinner. He must be. Verse 17, so they again said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? Now, what's brilliant is, is this man has been given his sight back. You see this, you see that his sight is starting to grow in strength. Because Jesus was just a few moments ago the man. Well, now he says that Jesus is a prophet, meaning that he is no ordinary man. He is a man sent from God. Tragically, for the Pharisees, it seems that their sight is beginning to weaken. They've got this evidence that's blindly obvious, staring them in the face, but they, they just don't want to face up to the facts regarding Jesus. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he'd been blind and he'd received the sight. Like they cannot make, they can't make sense of this. And so they called the parents of the man who'd received his sight and asked them, is this your son who was born blind? How then does he now see? Now, I want, I want you to hold this in your mind. The parents' respond, response to the Pharisees will stand in stark contrast to their son's response in the verses to come. Is this your son? Yep. Was he born blind? Yep. How did it happen? Verse 21, we don't know. How he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Now let me tell you, you can bet your granny on this one, right? When that young boy went home and he told his mum and dad that he could see, he said, All I know was the man, Jesus, did it. It was Jesus. We can be almost certain they knew. They knew at least the name of Jesus. But when they get the opportunity to testify about Jesus, they throw their son under the bus. They say, ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Now, that's just a tiny little indicator regarding this man. He probably is young. He's of age. Ask him. Now, why is there such fear within his parents? Well, John explains in verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. 
Here's why they refuse to tell the truth. Fear. Here's why they refuse to say anything about Jesus. Fear. And here's a point of application. Fear is one of our biggest problems. It is a paralyzing foe. Fear. It can cause us to be silent when we should speak. It can cause us to lie when we should tell the truth. It can cause us to turn our backs on the ones we love. Fear's a great thief. It robbed these parents of enjoying having the joy of their son's transformation. He once was blind and now he can see, but fear keeps them from saying it was Jesus. And I guarantee with a church this size this morning, the people here, and the reason you don't come to Jesus to believe in Jesus is because fear. You don't know how your standing is going to be infected among your family, your friends, your work colleagues. The reason some of us never speak about Jesus in our work, among our friends, among our family, it's fear. These parents, they're a picture of fear. Now, in verse 24, the the take the advice of the parents. They call the blind man, the man who was once blind, back. But instead of putting the question to him, how did this happen again? The first thing they do is they give him an instruction. Give God the glory. And then they say, because here's our opinion, we know, right, that's with authority and certainty, we know that this man is a sinner. He's not a prophet, he's not of God, he's a lawbreaker. Now, what I love about this young man is he's just wonderfully authentic in his response. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, Though I was blind, now I see. These Pharisees, they are so concerned with the fact that in their minds, Jesus has broken the laws regarding the Sabbath. This young man, he's so overwhelmed with the fact he was once blind and now he can see. And so he says, though I was blind, I can now see. That's what I do know. That's the evidence. That's the evidence that's in front of them. And, and, and these men are so dogmatic in their viewpoints, they're not willing to consider the evidence. One preacher has said, a Christian with a glowing testimony is worth a library full of arguments. A Christian with a glowing testimony is worth a library full of arguments. Like, I was blind, but now I see. Explain it. The only explanation is the one who can do the impossible. Now, the Pharisees ask him, okay, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And this is the most brilliant moment. This young man, he's so innocent, right? And his response, he's just like, okay, you now want me to teach you. Well, I've already told you. You would not listen. Now, it's interesting. He actually sees more. He diagnoses another problem. The problem with these Pharisees is not only can they not see, but they can't hear. They're deaf, spiritually speaking. And so he asks them a question, like, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? Like, do you want to follow Jesus? It's just so innocent. Like, is that why you're asking again? And they reviled him. You're his disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. Listen to them. We know. 
authority, clarity that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. It's interesting. They're presented with the evidence. This man was blind and now he can see. And these men are absolutely convinced that Jesus is not of Moses. He's not of God. So dogmatic. The evidence just they just don't want it to fit with their expectation of the Messiah. They're unwilling to engage. You might never have thought this if you're someone here and you're not a person of faith, but there might be a Pharisee in you because so many people who, when it comes to the claims of Christ, sometimes just don't want to engage the evidence. You've got a dogmatic view. You just can't be God. But how do you explain this one? This man was blind and now he can see. The Old Testament scriptures say this is the coming sign that he is the Christ and the Son of God. Now, do you know what I love about this young man? It's his mind just constantly reflecting on the evidence. <laughs> so, so, so he just hears what these guys say. We know he's not of Moses. We don't know where this man comes from. So here's this young man's response. Why? This is an amazing thing. Like, whoa. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Like, just think about that. He opened my eyes. Of course you know where he came from. The scriptures tell us where he came from. In fact, he goes further. Here's my theological nation. This young man who's uneducated, who's been a blind beggar. We know, don't we, guys, you know, Pharisees, we know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. See what he does? It's brilliant. Let's just think through the evidence. Where does the evidence lead us? The only explanation is that this man, this prophet, is of the Lord. These Pharisees who've got the evidence staring them in the face, they don't respond with argument. They respond with an attack. They fulfill the fears of this young man's parents. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. In fact, they, they, they imbibe the religious worldview of the day. Your sin leads to your suffering. And you would teach us. And they cast him out. Can I say what this man's a, a model, an example, an inspiration for us? He is so courageous. <laughs> he just speaks the truth. He just reflects on the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And he just... I don't care what consequences are. I just got to tell you what I know. He's an example for us. And you know the great tragedy is these men who are supposed to be spiritual leaders, these men who are supposed to embody the character of God, they don't show compassion, concern, or care for this man. Now these men, they are spiritually speaking bankrupt. They are spiritually speaking in the dark. They are blind as blind can be. All they can do is revile, insult. And then excommunicate. They are, a pic- they are a picture of men in darkness. So we've looked at the man. Now finally let's think about the meaning. John Chrysostom, one of the greatest 
preachers of the early church said it this way, the Jews cast him out of the temple and the Lord of the temple found him. It's fascinating. At the very start of the passage, Jesus saw him. At the very end of the passage, Jesus found him. It's all divine initiative. It's all Jesus is doing. And you know what Jesus says to him? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus put the same question to his disciples. You know, who do men say that I am the Son of Man? And the man's response, it just reveals a heart that's been prepared by the Spirit. We've seen his physical healing. Now we're going to see spiritual healing. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus now sheds the light on his soul. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. I don't know when he came back from the pool, if he came back and he actually saw Jesus, because he would have just seen these 13 men, 12 disciples and Jesus. And, and who healed me? And maybe Peter shouted out, Jesus. But he didn't know who Jesus was. He was blind for his whole life. And so he ran home. He just, all I know is Jesus healed me. And now he has this one-on-one, face-to-face conversation with Jesus. And Jesus says, it's me. Now, just so you don't miss it, look at what he said and look at what he did. He said, Lord. He looks at Jesus, this man. He calls him Lord. I believe and he worshipped him. He gives God the glory. He, he worships the light of the world standing in front of him. And the progression of this man is remarkable. He called him the man. He called him the prophet. He called him the one, I, though I was blind now, I see because of him. And now he says, you are the son of man. You are Lord. You are God. You are to be worshipped. And the tragedy is we have the very reverse of that in the Pharisees. Because Jesus' next statement is this. Verse 39. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. The Pharisees hear Jesus say this, those who are standing near him and and they wonder to themselves, are are we blind? (laughs) Like their, their consciences are pricked because they're the ones who think they can see. And Jesus said to them, if you're blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You know the greatest tragedy with the Pharisees was when they looked at the light of the world, they were just blinded. Blinded. Blinded to who he was. Deaf to what he said. Charles Haddon Spurgeon tells this story. He said that when he was um, in this moment in his life where he would be very backwards in using spectacles, um, he could almost see without them. He knew he needed them, but he didn't want to appear to his congregation as an old man. <laughs> but then he discovered that he couldn't read his notes well without wearing spectacles, and so he finally put them on. And he came to the conclusion, I don't care what you think of me. So here's his point. So when a man comes to see that they are blind, they need to come to the point where they recognize they need the light to dispel the darkness. They need the one who can set the blind 
free and give sigh. They need to turn to Jesus. And the problem with these Pharisees is they wouldn't. They were blind to who he was, deaf to what he said, and they wouldn't admit. They couldn't say what this young man said, Lord, I believe and worship. They, they would not accept, though he was blind, now he sees. That's evidence enough. And so the question is, what about you? What about me? Are you willing to admit you're blind, spiritually speaking? Are you willing to admit that the one who we have met in this passage, he is the light of the world, and he can dispel the darkness? Let's pray. Our glorious Father, we thank you so much for this this sign that points us to who your Son is, the Christ, the Son of God, the light of the world, the sent one. And we admit, we have been, spiritually speaking, from birth blind. But we thank you for that day, for some of us who believe right now that we can look back and realize that we were blind, but then we came to see because of your son. And we pray this morning that would be the day for those who haven't yet believed, that today they would admit who they are and they would come to believe and they'd come to worship. Indeed, their testimony would be the testimony of amazing grace. I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was once blind, but now I see. And it's all because grace taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. We pray this in the mighty and the strong name of Jesus. Amen.